Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Hello, I'm Rory Stewart. And I'm Alistair Campbell. Welcome to The Rest is Politics. Well, what a start, Alistair. We're top of the iTunes and Spotify charts. Um, thank you very, very much to everybody who's been joining us. When, when was the last time, Alistair, you were number one? Oh, my God. Well, I've had a few number one bestsellers, but not for a few years. And the last one got into the top ten, but not number one. I guess my last absolute number one was when Leave Means Leave named me as their Ramona of the Year. <laughs> something, something I continue to wear as a badge of pride, given how badly Brexit's going. Ramona of the Year. What was it? Ramona of the Year 2017. I can't remember when it was. It was 27, 2018. I may even have won it twice. I, mean, I, you know, I get to keep the T-shirt after a while. My, 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 my best one was I was, um, I was made GQ Politician of the Year and I was just getting up to get my prize in this incredible sort of, yeah, in this enormous hall in the Tate Gallery with all these very, very famous people around, none of whom had any idea who I was. I mean, obviously, they were kind of Stormzy, there were these Hollywood actors. And I was just getting up to do my acceptance speech when I got this text from the chief whip telling me I'd just been fired from the Conservative Party and my career in politics was over. <laughs> was that the one where, I don't know if we're allowed to say this, but that was, was that the one where Billy Connolly made an absolutely brilliant and borderline obscene speech about a comedian who'd just gone before him? I missed the whole beginning of the whole thing because I was voting in Parliament. I turned up right. with a little wheelie bag from Cumbria in a pair of tartan trousers just in time to accept my prize. I've missed Tartan trousers to go with the pinky ring. The tartan trousers to go with the pinky ring. Oh, come on. <laughs> so you sure you know somebody with tartan trousers? <laughs> no, only you, only you. <laughs> so listen, I suppose we better start really where we started and spent most of last week, which is on, on Ukraine. Um, and I want to kick off, I think, just by talking about the, the British government and the response in relation to refugees? Because it seems to me to be one of those areas, one where your former department is being missed, the Department for International Development, which this lot got rid of. But secondly, it's just this sense of sort of nothing joined up and mixed messaging. So yesterday you had Liz Truss at the Select Committee saying it's all down to the Home Office and Home Office, Priti Patel in the House of Commons, just so lacking in clarity about what people were meant to do. And meanwhile, I've just been looking at some German and French media and, you know, we're getting covered around, around the world as just, you know, the one that's doing the least. It's shocking. And of course, Boris Johnson gave an interview saying that we were right out in front and we were leading the world and nobody was doing as much as us just last week. So I, I, I think fundamentally the problem is they don't really want to take refugees. This is a political thing. And they're dressing it up. They've been embarrassed to say it about the Afghan refugees, where the government announced they were going to take 20,000 and then basically didn't set up the scheme. And now the same with the Ukrainians. They want to be able to say they're helping Ukrainian refugees. But at the same time, they've got a voter base that doesn't really want any refugees at all. And I think that's the fundamental thing. So I think it's, it's basically nonsense. I think they really are not up for taking people into Britain. But do you know thing that really depresses me about it is that one of the things that Putin has operated on and has made him the, the the figure that he now is, is the belief that you don't run government on principles of telling the truth and being factual. And so I've now got to a position when, for example, yesterday, Boris Johnson talking about the refugee situation, we've taken him more than any other European country, which just isn't true. Um, or even when he's sort of saying, you know, I didn't intervene in relation to Lebedev's peerage, or when he's talking about, frankly, anything. There's a, your mindset now starts to think, well, he's probably not telling me the truth. And I think that given this is, as we discussed last week, developing into a kind of global struggle between democracy and dictatorship, you kind of want the dem democracies to be sticking to those principles of, you know, tr striving to tell yeah. the truth. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, I'd love to make this something we could talk about more in an, another episode, because obviously, sorry, we've got the azan. I'm still in. Never apologize. Hear, never apologize hear, 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 for the call, the call to prayer, prayer coming in. <laughs> um, but I, it's something I'd love to discuss more with you, because obviously when you were in Downing Street, you were accused of being right at the center of being a spin doctor and all this kind of stuff. Mm. And there was all this stuff about Blair the liar. So it, it would be good to try to get into the details of where you think the balance lies. And I guess for me, Politics is about a middle ground. 
It's about accepting that politicians are people who are trying to win, they're campaigning, they're trying to beat the opposition. So obviously somebody who was a perfect saint is not likely to become prime minister. But at the same time, there have to be limits. There has to be a sense that certain things are off, off limits. And trying to work out what that is, what, what kind of truth do you expect from politicians when lying crosses a line? But maybe that's, that's a longer, longer issue. Let me just mm. come back to you on the refugees for a moment. Um, do you think I'm right that fundamentally what's going on is that they think their voter base doesn't want any refugees? Whether it's about the voter base or whether it's about them and that they just think, well, part of the whole Brexit thing was taking back control of the borders we, and it's a way of sort of showing that. But at the same time, it's this complete disconnect between what they're saying and what's actually happening on the ground. And honestly, I watched some of the TV news yesterday. There was a, there was a woman on one of the bulletins who was talking about how she, she was here. She was wearing a Ukrainian flag. She was Ukrainian, but she came here as a child spoke flawless English, accentless, flawless English, and she's been trying to get her grandmother here as part of the family scheme. But you're just going through the bureaucratic chaos. And honestly, you see these pictures, and, we, and to be fair, Poland and Hungary have had a pretty bad rep as part of the European family sure. in recent, recent years and months. But you see them being welcomed in the way that they are. And then you see pictures of these Ukrainians arriving in Calais looking at little porter cabin windows where there's a sort of URL that they have to take down and sort of put into their phone. And maybe if you phone this number, and then they're told they've got to go to Paris or Brussels. And then they're told that when they get there, the place probably won't be open because they don't have any slots to be. And then Johnson goes up and says, we're processing thousands. As we speak, we're processing thousands. I don't even know what that means at the moment. It's, it's so sad, isn't it? And it's very strange that Britain is now falling behind the, so much behind the pack. If you think about it, you know, even post-Brexit, you might expect Britain to rank itself alongside, I don't know, the United States, Canada, Sweden, Germany. But all these states are doing so much more internationally on refugees. I, I was trying to argue that actually it's an opportunity for Boris Johnson if he wants to show after Brexit that he can show moral leadership and that there's an idea of what Britain can do in the world. Refugees could be part of that. And it could be about burden sharing. It could be about setting a target. So I was very interested in the idea he could say all countries would commit every year to take 0.05% of their population as refugees, which would be the equivalent to, I don't know, a Ukrainian family of five in a town of 10,000 people. And that's roughly where the US is, and the Canada's doing better than that, and Sweden's been doing very well. But it's almost unimaginable now to see Britain playing that role, and I don't really understand that. I don't understand, particularly actually because Boris Johnson in some ways used to have quite liberal instincts, used to be mm. you know, quite relaxed about socially liberal, quite relaxed about immigration. Why we're now in a world where it somehow seems unimaginable that Britain can take a moral lead? But, but Rory, if you go back over your time in Parliament and over the last two, three decades, the politics of the Conservative Party has focused so much on this issue of you know, keep them out, uh, foreign or bad. And that is a sort of sense that that sort of populist nationalism is what Johnson has morphed into. Um, now, I think he I think he sometimes feels guilty about it, which is why he feels the need to say the right things. And, you know, we, and this thing about this constant, even Ben Wallace was doing it. I saw him being interviewed and he was constantly saying, you know, we're leading the world on lethal aid and we're, we're showing the way on this, this constant talking of leadership. And I think to be fair on the, on the provision of, of military support, I think the UK has done, has done, you know, reasonably well. Um, it obviously not as much as Zelensky wants, that's for sure. But I think that this constant sort of messaging about we're leading the world, we're doing things when they're not doing them. That's what I find extraordinary. And just very briefly, we can talk about this another time if you like, but just briefly on your point about Tony Blyer and the spin doctor and all that, I do find it really bizarre that we were constantly accused of lying when we didn't. And we can argue about that till the cows come home and all the public inquiries, I think, have shown there was no lie, there was no conspiracy, there was just a decision which the government took and some people didn't like it and others did. But this lot who really do lie a lot. I mean, okay, not as much as Putin. I'm not saying it's on that scale, but they do lie 
regularly in the House of Commons, Johnson does, regularly on the airwaves, his ministers go out to repeat them. And yet there's a sort of normalisation to it that most of our media doesn't even bother picking it up anymore. I'd love to do much more on this. And I'd love to challenge you a bit more on the Iraq stuff and and get into that. And we'll do do that later in another episode. But I'm reading a book on lying at the moment. Mm -hmm. And one of the interesting things that this guy points out, he's he's really in favour of very radical truth-telling in daily life all the time. But one of the things he points out is that the problem, if you're in the habit of lying, and this is a problem for Boris Johnson, is it's very difficult remembering what your story was. I mean, if you're telling the truth all the time, then obviously remembering what your story was is is a bit more straightforward. Yeah. But you then get a bit muddled about what you really thought about things. And instead of really thinking freshly and clearly and thinking, well, what do I really think about refugees or... What do I really think we should be doing in Afghanistan or Ukraine? You're so caught up in the question of trying to vaguely remember what you might have said in the past or not said Mm. that you can't think. I'm not sure he even cares anymore, though, because he knows the point you made about people just forget and the media caravan moves on. I mean, the one that really, really stood out to me was when he did that hospital visit during COVID and the father went up to him and really laid into him and said, you know, you're only here for a photo call. And, And Johnson literally said, there are no media here as they looked at the media. And it's like, you think, what sort of fantasy world are we in? But of course, Putin, one of, you, you talk about the book you're reading. One of the books that I, I'm sure you've read this one, and, and I talk about this book a lot. It's by Peter Pomerantsev, who sounds Russian, but is actually British. Uh, Nothing is true and everything is possible, which is how Putin made modern Russia. Now, that's the, where we are today is the logical consequence of a politics where not only do you lie and you persuade yourself that the lies are true but as we're seeing from some of the reactions within russia i mean yes we're seeing some protests but you're also seeing an awful lot of people who are painting the z on their shirts and on their cars and they're basically coming out and saying whatever putin says is true yeah it's it's amazing isn't it so there was this extraordinary bit of trolling which was done by Zelensky. Mm. so putin had put out you know he sits at the end of this as you said (laughs) this crazy marble air hockey table and he's still sitting behind the marble air hockey table with everybody, you know, 100 meters away. But he put out this film, which purported to show him sitting yeah. with a lot of people around the table with him. And this wonderful research into virtual reality and the, and the way in which special effects are done in movies showed how the whole thing was bogus, that his mm. hand would sort of move through the microphone because the microphone <laughs> wasn't really there and that the woman sitting on his right was actually looking over his shoulder because she'd been cut from another picture and the teapot didn't actually have the reflections the people that should. So Zelensky, when he did his uh, press conference to show he was really there, tapped his microphone to show that it was actually a microphone. But it is extraordinary, as you say, despite all that, we're still in a situation where relatively reputable polling suggests 66% of Russians blame NATO for the war in Ukraine. About 14% blame the Ukrainian government. And only about 4% seem to blame the Russian leadership. Yeah, I think it's, look, you say reputable polling, and and I'm not criticising the polling company, but I think it is very, very, very hard to get a real sense of public opinion in Russia. You imagine you're sitting there, you know that the news is rigged, even if you like it, you know that it's state propaganda. And the phone goes and it's some guy says, you know, this is Vladimir from the polling company, blah. Do you think President Putin, you know, the, you're going to be quite brave in the current climate to say, no, I think he's a terrible man. And I think what he's doing in Ukraine is absolutely outrageous. So I think it's very, very hard to get a real sense of that. But I, I, I do think that we've underestimated. Interestingly, I was, you know, our, our, I suppose we could call it our sister podcast, The Rest is History. I was listening to their discussion about Putin's rise and they played a clip and I think we played a little role in this because they played a clip of George Bush at his ranch with Putin. Do you remember the famous time when Bush said, I've looked into this guy's soul and I can see a guy that we can work with? Now, the truth is when when Bush first became president, he was very, very, very traditional American view of Putin. He basically, I remember him saying, you know, once a KGB guy, always a KGB guy. And I remember at that point where, because Putin was quite West orientated, quite reform minded, Tony, like, you know, in common with Clinton, in common with others, really felt this was a leader that we could kind of, you know, push in the right direction. And I think Tony had some role in persuading Bush not to have this kind of very mono view. And 
I think it was around that time. And funnily enough, I was listening to Jonathan Powell in an interview recently, and he was, uh, I'd forgotten about this, but when we were at uh, one of these visits with Putin, when Tony and Putin played snooker together or pool, and they had a joint phone call with George Bush as a way of showing, you know, yeah. we're, we're sort of coming together. And so I think that sense of, I was going to ask you about this in relation to maybe some of the work that you did when you were Secretary of State for International Development. You're dealing with a lot of, you know, governments that have got a reputation, shall we say, for corruption, whatever mm. it might be. I think there's sometimes a danger that we, we think people are like we want them to be. Yeah, I, I think we, I think Putin has exploited that relentlessly. Couldn't agree more. And I've been looking at your diaries, your volume three diaries, where it's very interesting because, of course, Tony Blair and you were taking quite a risk against the British press in the way you greeted Putin. So a lot of the time in the meetings, those early meetings, you're commenting that the British press wants to talk about Chechnya, wants to talk about mm. human rights abuses. Mm. And in one of those first meetings... Tony Blair says to Putin, you, you need to explain better to the world what you're doing in Chechnya, as though the problem is a communications issue. Mm. And I completely understand what's going on. What's going on is that the ambassador to Russia is desperate to try to build good relationships because that's what ambassadors always want to do. And there is a case being made, which was a case that Angela Merkel absolutely believed that the way to deal with Russia was to create such strong economic connections that you would in effect bring them bring them in out of the cold. But it is something that I saw again and again and again. My, my most dramatic example was uh, with Zimbabwe. So I was the, the minister when Mugabe fell and uh, Munangagwa took over. And we should have been a little bit worried about the fact that the guy that was taking over was called Emerson the Crocodile Munangagwa, probably should have given us a bit of a clue. And the fact that he'd run Mugabe's intelligence and security service, and that as a 16-year-old boy, he'd assassinated somebody and had escaped prison because he was too young to, to face the death penalty. I went out there, and the ambassador was so optimistic. She had spent a lot of time developing a relationship with Monongagwa. She was so excited that he is the guy that had taken over and she felt that all these months and years of investment in developing a relationship had come to fruition. And she was determined to give him the benefit of the doubt, let him run. Mm, mm. I was pushing very, very hard to try to set conditions and really watch him. And I remember... The first dinner when I arrived in Zimbabwe, sitting with the ambassador and all these leading figures in Zimbabwean civil society, all of them saying to me, this is really good. This is a great new dawn for Zimbabwe. And I got increasingly aggravated because I knew nothing about Zimbabwe. But what I did know is, I guess I've been to nearly 100 countries and I'd seen a lot of this kind of optimism in other places. And eventually, I, I bet a very distinguished Zimbabwean human rights activist, uh, a pastor, I, I bet him 50 pounds that everything he was predicting would be untrue and that Monongagwa would turn out to be as bad as his predecessors. And actually, very sweetly, he tracked me down in Yale just a year ago to pay me my money. Right? <laughs> but but, but it, was, it was interesting because you got a real sense of the tension between the experts. I didn't know very much about Zimbabwe, but also what you pick up is a fresh pair of eyes. So when I went to the meeting with Monongagwa, I was the first person that met him after his inauguration. He came in surrounded by these guys in uniform, mm. slightly terrifying guys in uniform, and sat there and kept telling me what a good friendship he had with Joseph Kabila, who was the head of the DRC, and the relationships going back to the 70s with, with Kabila's father. and All of this stuff should have been such an alarm bell. And yet the British system was so excited that Mugabe had gone. But you, you think about it, uh, assuming that, I mean, people keep saying with certain confidence that this, whatever, how, however long it takes, this is the end of Putin. Well, we'll see. But I do, th you know, when you think about what a relief will go through the kind of world, the global system, if that were to be the case, you're probably going to see something similar thereafter, that whoever emerges because the state has been hollowed out other than as a sort of Putin shell. 
I have to tell you that the, I'd never had the, the <laughs> my first experience of Mugabe was a Commonwealth summit in Edinburgh, uh, where he, he, he appeared absolutely obsessed with the idea that because me, Jonathan Powell, two or three other people in Tony's entourage were not married, we were all homosexuals. And he was, and then he, he actually started to say that Tony Blair was a homosexual as well. I don't know if you remember that became one of his, one of his uh, attacks on us that we, we, we were just a, a government of homosexuals. Uh, I don't know why that popped into my head, Rory, as you talked about. about um, so, uh, so, so do you, I mean, one of the things I always got a bit wound up about with David Cameron is that he really believed that personal relationships could swing things. So he was always somehow believing that if he could just get the president of Afghanistan and the president of Pakistan round to stay in checkers and they had a jolly time at breakfast, it would be great. And if he, you know, watched football with Angela Merkel, it would all be great. And that little twinkle in her eye would mean he'd get these amazing concessions on Brexit. Um, what's your sense of how much personal relationships do or don't really count in these things and where the limits of them are? I think they do count. I think they are important. But it's interesting that you talk about that in relation to Cameron, whose weakness I would always have said was actually that he overplayed his – and, you know, I'm sure there'll be other times to talk about the influence of Eton on our public life, Rory. But I do think this sense of, you know, you're taught this incredible self-confidence and you really believe – and I think Cameron really did believe that he was made to be prime minister – and that therefore, just as he'd be made to persuade the public to vote for him, to make him prime minister, he could persuade people to his will. Now, I think all top politicians have to have that belief that they can persuade people to their will. But I think the, my, I think the personal relationships become very important when you are trying to do difficult things together. So I would say that in Northern Ireland, the Northern Ireland peace process, for example, I think the relationships between Tony Blair and Bertie Ahern, and both of them, and Bill Clinton, and Bill Clinton and Jerry Adams, and Tony Blair and David Trimble, etc. They, I think, it sort of it helped. I think people overstate the importance of the, you know, the the sort of the shot of them clinking glasses, the shot of them watching the football. I think they overstate that, but but I think that there can when when you've got. The people on the same side trying to do very difficult things together, I think it can be incredibly important. And, and I think you put, put your finger on the question of the on the same side, because one of the things that is true is that if you're dealing with somebody who's not on your side, it doesn't really matter how charming you're being. I mean, I, I remember feeling this slightly when I was trying to reach across uh, during the Brexit thing. I was trying to work to get a compromise soft Brexit deal together. I think this one was a customs union deal that we were trying to do with Ken Clark. And I remember sensing that the real question was, was it going to be possible for Theresa May actually to come up with a compromise with Jeremy Corbyn? And my sense was, as time went on, it was never going to happen. Now, mm. what I still don't know is, was that her limits as a politician, that a different sort of prime minister, if I'd been lucky enough to become prime minister, might I have been able to reach across to Labour and got them behind a Brexit deal? Or in the end, are the interest just fundamentally incompatible. And then in the end, the Labour Party is the Labour Party, the Conservative Party, the Conservative Party, doesn't matter how charming you are, they're going to hang Brexit around your neck and they're not going to agree to any kind of compromise deal. Well, interesting. I, I talked to, because I was involved in the whole, you know, post-Brexit people's vote thing, I talked to both sides. I had sort of conversations with both sides around those meetings. And the sense that I was getting was actually that people on the government side and Theresa May side did think there was something possible to be done with Keir Starmer, then the Brexit spokesman, and even with John McDonnell, funnily enough. Uh, but they felt that Jer Jeremy Corbyn was in a completely different place, um, and therefore the whole thing kind of went nowhere. Uh, but yeah, I think, I think the – look, there's not a politician in the world who doesn't think they can persuade somebody closer to them. Um, and the personal relations do matter. There's no doubt about that. But I think – I think we can overstate them uh, as well as understate them. I've got to say at the moment, there's not a politician in the world who doesn't want to have a group, apart from Putin, who doesn't want to have a great relationship with Zelensky. Uh, now, that's a, that's, that gives him, assuming and hopefully that he survives, that gives him an extraordinary political capital. Isn't that going, wonderful? Going Amazing. You, you know, we, 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 I know I, I, last night, I, this is how amazing it is. Do you know what we watched on telly last night? We watched the... <laughs> 
the servants of the people, which is now on Channel Four. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Which the, is, the, the it's pro- on Channel Four now. Is it? <laughs> yeah, they're, they're showing. I watched the- it. I, I watched it about a year ago. It's brilliant. Well, and and also you just—it's extraordinary to think this is guy who's just like a comic actor yeah. playing becoming the president, and now he's the president. And it's also very, very funny. I mean, people who haven't seen it, they must see it because the, the comedy of it, of course, is that he's a slightly sort of sometimes sort of bumbling incompetent prime minister. It's like um, it's more like Veep or something. It's it's yeah, not he, like he, he it's not like House of Cards. Yeah. He accidentally yeah. becomes president. Yeah. He's a kind of, it's a sort of Russian tradition or Ukrainian tradition, kind of holy fool. So, sorry, just to explain to people who don't know, this is, this is how Zelensky made his name. He was the star of this television series on Ukrainian television called Servant of the People, in, which begins with him as a school teacher rattling along on his bicycle. And he finds himself propelled to be prime minister. And he, off the back of this, so off the back of being a, um, a sort of satire of what it means to be prime minister, a sort of charming, slightly bumbling prime minister on screen. He, is he, he prime became, minister? Is he prime minister president, or president? president? Yeah, president. president. Yeah, I'm sorry, yeah, president. Yeah. He becomes a real president. Yeah. And it was extraordinary. But initially, people used that to kind of write him off. They were like, oh, he's a comedian. He's like Beppe Grillo. He's like Boris Johnson. It's just a whole world of celebrity comedians becoming presidents. But actually, he is razor sharp. And mm. I think people picked up... Uh, from watching him, his qualities, which are now emerging so well. But as I think we're supposed to be going on to a break. I think we should do that. So I think we'll take a break now and we'll be back very shortly with some questions from you. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to me, Alistair Campbell and Rory Stewart for the second part of The Rest is Politics. And we, and honestly, I must repeat what Rory said earlier. Thank you so much to people, not just for listening, but also for the really kind comments. A little bit of abuse, but we're used to that. Uh, But also we put out an appeal on social media for some questions and we're absolutely inundated. So we can't go through them all. We're going to pick out couple each. I want to read this one from Helen Robertshaw, who emailed to say she was interested to hear me talking about picking up German again during lockdown. Perhaps you could both talk about languages, the importance of language in politics and diplomacy and wartime situations, and how you've both used languages in your work. Now, Rory, I know you're big on languages, not least when you're walking across countries. But the th- do you know the thing that came to my mind when I saw that question was actually about a German leader. It was Angela Merkel, speaks obviously fluent German. She also speaks fluent Russian and she also speaks pretty flawless English. And yet in her public role as chancellor, she always, always spoke German um, because she, I think, wanted to communicate to the German people that she was always there 
for them. But she was very, very good at using her languages um, in in meetings. I, I think the language issue is really important. And that there's one of the sad things is that a lot of diplomats, aid workers are convincing themselves that you don't need to speak somebody else's language to work abroad. And they convince themselves everybody speaks English. This is very convenient because it means that you can save a lot of money on language training people. But of course, the truth is that the advantage of learning the language isn't just that you can talk to people outside the cities, because certainly in the developing world, it's generally only people in the capital and usually quite elite people who speak English. It's mm. ridiculous for a development worker to suggest everybody speaks English. But it's also that the mere fact of learning the language and ideally living with a family in the country while you're learning the language just teaches you things you can't possibly pick up from a book. It also, it also signals respect. I think it's important that if you, if you I, I was always amazed when we were traveling around the world. That, I mean, for example, I one, of the, one of the times I saw Tony Lair, the most terrified I've ever seen him was when we, we persuaded him to speak to the National Assembly in Paris in French. And uh, without boasting too much, Rory, I don't think his French is quite as good as mine. However, <laughs> he did pretty well and the French loved it. I think they, you know, I think they really sense they, it shows respect. I think that's important. It's a great thing to do. It's a great, great thing to do. Now, Rory, I've got a question down yeah. here, which yeah. is got absolutely, this is not for me. This is one for you. And I really am interested in the answer as well. It's from Ed Maunder. Ed, thank you for this question. Uh, I have a question for Rory. If you were offered a job as a foreign policy advisor in a Labour government, would you consider it? I think definitely I'd be happy to do foreign policy advice uh, for any government that is interested in my views. I think that the problem is more likely to be that, that people don't want me. Certainly, certainly the current government is not very interested in my views. But yeah, no, I, 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 I feel very, very lucky, very privileged that I've spent a lot of time working in foreign countries. I'm very interested in foreign policy and I love Britain. So I'd love to provide advice to anyone foolish enough to want to listen to me. Okay, well, let's hope that Keir Starmer and David Lamy are écoutants. <laughs> um, <laughs> right, now, why don't you pick out a couple? Yeah, I've got the honour system. Arise Sir Gavin Williamson. Is that a question from somebody? Yeah, it's Philippa Jane Burns. So it's, she says, appreciate it's off topic as far as the Ukraine crisis goes, but dot, 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 Sir Gavin. Oh my Can God. we have some insight into what discussions will have occurred to arrive at the absurdity and what he knows about whom for this to have happened? So what do you think about that? Well, I do think that the corruption of the honour system uh, under Johnson is really galloping apace. Uh, I mean, you talked earlier about how things just get forgotten. It's not that long ago. The Sunday Times did that big thing about, you know, basically three million for a peerage. Um, I think the whole Lebedev story is, I don't think we've got remotely got to the bottom of that and Johnson's relationship with him. But I suspect what happened is that, I don't know, but I suspect what happened is that Williamson was told by Johnson when he gave him the boot that, you know, go quietly and these things matter to you. people. I and mean, I've never understood why people care so much about the honour system, but they do. Um, and he's sort of given it as a reward for going away and keeping quiet. He's certainly not. I mean, you, nobody could argue that he's been given it on grounds of his abilities as a minister. Um, I mean, Fiona, my partner, who you know is, works in education, I think would say he's probably the worst education secretary that we've ever had. Um, and I just think it makes an absolute mockery of the entire honour system. And I also think the other thing that will have happened is Johnson have thought, well, nobody's going to care too much because Ukraine's going on. I'll just sort of, you know, sneak it out quickly. It's very, it's very weird. One of the other things that makes it so strange is Gavin Williamson came in in my intake, so he's only elected in 2010. So there's a sort of tradition of giving knighthoods to real old veteran MPs. So a lot of the people who've been in, and this was true for Labour and Conservative, been in 30, 40 years, got knighthoods. But it was almost unheard of for somebody like Gavin, who's been in 10, 11 years and is just in his in his 40s. It's quite a young guy mm. to be given a knighthood. So it will also seem very strange to other members of parliament, you know, who uh, can't quite get what's going on, don't really understand what's what's happening. It will have been a very specific request, I guess, from Gavin Williamson. I don't think it's something that anyone would naturally have offered because it's so out of the ordinary. I don't think that... Um, it would have been suggested by Boris Johnson. I don't think it would have been suggested by the chief whip. But one of the things we know about Boris is that he quite likes to make people happy. He likes to agree with people. He likes to be sort of amenable. And one of the things that kept happening when I was in the foreign office with him is that he would agree to things like that. And then people would have to run around behind and try to unpick it. So I'm guessing what happened is that Gavin probably himself said, okay, if I'm leaving, at least make me a 
a night and he would have said yes yes of course why and listen then, rory answer this why do people care so much what difference does it make to their lives well i guess the the amazing thing about it and, and all this honest system is that it's a nostalgic confidence trick because of course why do we love knights we love knights because we love knights in shining armor we love kind of sir galahad and sir lancelot so it's a sort of thing from 800 years ago and there's a a weird thing going on in people's minds where they somehow imagine that if they're called a knight, I guess maybe I'm pushing this too far, they're almost becoming a member of kind of King Arthur's court and they're going to become everything a knight is supposed to be honorable and brave. And um, It's a very weird thing that I, I felt this a bit with um, with some of the other awards they come. They also give politicians things like companion of honor, order of merit, things which are normally given to very distinguished academics. Uh, and that's a bit weird too. It's 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 it sort of reminds you of what used to happen in the kind of 1600s, where the king's favourite would be made the made the sort of poet laureate, right? <laughs> Despite the fact he couldn't really do any poetry, or giving somebody a kind of Nobel Prize for biochemistry, even though you don't really know how to do biochemistry, and you go around pretending somehow that suddenly makes you a genius scientist because you've got this thing. Yeah, I find I find the whole thing very very strange. And I, I when I was in number ten, I used to have to take an interest because of course you know i was as the prime minister's spokesperson i was the person who kind of revealed the honors to the world and had to mug up on who got what for what and think through all the questions and and it meant that you used to get lobbied by people and i've kind of got i used to have a golden rule if somebody came through desperately asking for something with me it was a guaranteed way of trying to get their name further down the list but so are you saying you definitely would never take an honor no, I, well, I was, I've, I've been, I've turned down the House of Lords several times. And I, I mean, maybe that's not an honour in the same way because it was about going to do a job. But I, I, I think the whole thing just reeks, as you say, of something from a, another world and the, the whole thing about an empire. Um, no, I, 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 I wouldn't. Well, the Lord, the Lord thing's even weirder, isn't it? If, if the knight thing uh, is, is weird because knights in shining armour, the Lord Campbell of Burnley thing is a, is a kind of different, different thing, isn't it? It's, um, that's people, sort of trading off a sort of almost 19th century Victorian idea that if you're called a lord, you somehow own tens of thousands of acres and you live in some great castle. Well, some of them um, do. Some, some of them still do. That's right. You know, Tony left some of them in, didn't they? But, but, but of course, every, everybody else is trading off them, aren't they? I mean, yeah, exactly. The point, yeah. But they're also it, legislators. This is the thing. This, this is, I think, why it ultimately it does matter. I mean, I heard James Cleverley, um, foreign office minister, who's, who's probably the most ill-named person in politics, possibly apart from Andrew Adonis. And I heard him saying that we shouldn't really get too worked up about Lebedev because, of course, he never goes there. And I thought, well, that's a really interesting constitutional argument. We shouldn't care about some guy who's the son of a KGB agent and a mate of Boris Johnson's, and Johnson goes there on holiday without his security detail when, it's, when he was foreign secretary and comes back looking a bit rough at the airport. Uh, we shouldn't worry about him going in the House of Lords because he doesn't vote and he doesn't speak. What is the point of these people who don't speak and don't vote when they are actually have the powers of legislation? It's, it's extraordinary, isn't it? It's, it's really bizarre. And, it, and it's sad because, of course, um, you are totally debasing the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, it, presumably there comes a time when um, one of the reasons you don't want to be Lord Campbell of Burnley, apart from your views on the Constitution, is that you begin to think, well, actually, I don't really want to be associated with all these other people. I'm sure. I, I mean, I don't know how many people have turned them down. You do see people who've who turn their honours down. Um, but yeah, I think I, I, I only, when I see some of the people that you now see. I mean, sometimes I watch debates in the Lords. Uh, you know, there's something really big going on, and you're looking in the background. I'm looking at some of these people. I mean, I've, I've got to be frank. I find it utterly absurd that that guy David Frost is in the House of Lords, and not only is he in the House of Lords, he's now popping up the whole time as, as you know, great right wing thinker. <laughs> I just think, where have these people come from? So no, I, I couldn't, I couldn't bear, couldn't bear being in there. But but, but the but the weird thing about it is that at its best, if you leave out the politicians at its, and and the donors, sometimes I really felt the House of Lords was doing a much better job than else, particularly on things like foreign policy and defence, because you would have people who were professional soldiers, ambassadors, mm. professors, and suddenly the whole thing had a a level of knowledge of seriousness that you never saw in the House of Commons. I, and and I, I, I've always been very interested in this idea that you could almost um, 
deliberately make it that, try to make a, a, a revising chamber that would deliberately seek to take the most distinguished academics, professors, you know, civil servants, diplomats. But you're never going to take you're never going to take politics out of it, are you? It's impossible because who who appoints them and that whole you know the appointments commission. Uh, and I don't know the truth about Lebedev and whether the security services were against it, but ultimately, um, you know, the prime minister decides. And we're back to the whole point about where power lies. And I think our entire system historically is, is, is sort of rested on this idea that the system weeds out the bad people and the best people get to the top. Well, that is not working right now. No. And, and the other part of the system that I think is really troubling is that we're still living in this amateur fantasy. We are incredibly, particularly in public life in Britain, much less professional. You, you get a sense that, that the contrast, someone like Angela Merkel with a doctorate in, I think it's chemistry or biochemistry, the way that she sat around her cabinet table looking at COVID compared to the way that Boris Johnson can do that, just in terms of her background mm. and skills. Mm. Or the contrast between, we're talking about Gavin Williamson, he was made defense secretary having never been remotely interested in defense or foreign affairs, having never been a minister, never stood behind a statue. Suddenly he's the defense secretary. Now, at the is same that a plane? time... Is that you, a plane now or a call, another call to prayer? That, 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 no, that, that, that's what happens with silences and Jordanian uh, motorbikes. And that. Oh, is that no, a motorbike? Sounds, sounds, like sounds like a plane descending. <laughs> um, uh, but just on the government Williamson point, he's made defense secretary at the same time as in the United States, the defense secretaries over the Cameron, Theresa May, Boris Johnson period went from... Robert Gates, who was a very senior director of the CIA, through Ash Carter, who was the most distinguished Harvard professor on defense and security, and then Jim Mattis, who was a four-star general in the U.S. Marine Corps. Mm. And we're putting up against them people who, frankly, don't know the difference between a battalion and a brigade before they get the job. Oh, but he sold fireplaces. He was he a great fireplace. Great but fireplace. It's, and actually, to have a go, I mean, I really liked Bob Ainsworth. I liked him. He's a mm -hmm. good guy. But again, nobody's going to pretend Bob Ainsworth really knew the difference between a battalion and a brigade when he was made defense secretary. And I don't understand why we do this. It's not mm. actually that there aren't people in the House of Commons who have a little bit more knowledge of military and foreign affairs, but it's almost as though we deliberately exclude them. Well, I suppose to be fair, Ben Wallace does have a military background. And he's doing a pretty, he's actually probably doing a better job than the rest of the cabinet, partly as a result. I mean, he, he, mm. th there are times when a bit of knowledge, a bit of experience matters. Yes, but Rory, we've had enough of experts. Michael, Michael, your friend Michael told us. Listen, what did you get your OBE for? That was in Iraq. That was for defending my compound in Iraq. Okay. Got to read my book. Yeah. Did you get that from us or from your lot? I, I, I didn't get it from, I got it from actually the Labour government. That's true. Yeah. The Labour government. No, yeah, yeah. Yeah. With the Labour government. That's right. So listen, why don't you give us another yeah. question from one of our um, uh, okay, let's, let's, let's get listeners. Um, well, I quite like Justine Clayton, used to work for a minister in coalition days. Want to know was what the most absurd demand you ever had from a minister, UK or otherwise. You can give us a go at that. Oh my God. The most absurd demand. You go first. Was that one for me? Well, I thought it was one for you. I just dropped it on you. Um, <laughs> God, I'm so stunned into silence. It's very rare. Well, presumably because you got a lot of absurd demands. Right? No, I think probably because they knew that if I got an absurd demand, it would get very short shrift. I suppose they'd be in the area of um, people wanting me to put words in with Tony about getting jobs for which they were probably wholly unsuited. And a lot of it, a lot of it is about vanity, isn't it? I mean, I, I've been reading, um, as long as well as reading your diaries, I've been reading Alan Duncan's diaries. I've been reading this diary by Sasha Swire on her husband, Hugo Swire. Um, it, and I've been reading David Cameron's memoirs. It's amazing how much vanity there is. One of the extraordinary things in the Alan Duncan diaries is I sort of appear in, in lines where I'll say things like, met Rory Stewart today in the uh, House of Commons bar. He said to me that I was a real hero in Nepal for the work that I've done on the earthquake. And then there's no comment at all afterwards. And then, then he'll be like, just went to Turkey. And the ambassador said I'd done an incredibly good visit. I mean, it just on and on day after day after day, any compliment is just repeated. Sometimes it's the entire entry for the day. Wow. My, I, think, I hope you'd agree that my diary is a little bit more self-deprecating than that. I tend, yeah, you, not, I t I tend you, you, to go you, the other you, way. You're not endlessly including people saying how awesome you are. The other thing is they're incredibly interested, obviously, in their cars, in their accommodation, 
in their status and how often they see the prime minister. I mean, it's really bad for you because you get the sense of this very kind of febrile world where everybody is. So Alan Duncan, for example, keeps saying, it, basically, he keeps hoping he's going to get promoted. The whole thing is about hoping to get promoted. Well, of course, Alan, Alan Clark's diaries are very much like that, but better written. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's, but it's pretty terrifying mm. that, and it's terrifying also that in a way they've lost so much sort of objectivity or normalcy that they're, they're willing to record this stuff in their diary. That mm. there's never any moment where they say, of course he was flattering me or obviously not true or, <laughs> or he would say that, wouldn't he? <laughs> Yeah, right. So you're reading. So what I've gathered so far today, Rory, you're reading five books at the moment. Yeah, I, well, I've got the problem is I've got a Kindle, and and I've been trying to persuade you to get a Kindle, Alistair, which you, you're refusing to do. One of the weird things is the kind of world's probably the most famous director of communications in British public life is seems to be really sort of holding out. I mean, you you're, you do a lot of Instagram, and Twitter, don't you? But you're holding out against other bits of technology quite I'm, hard. It, I am. And I, I'm actually, I'm off to Dublin tomorrow. And, and I, I just had an email saying that there is still this extra form you have to fill in. And it, it's already kind of freaking me out. I've been thinking about it half the time while we're talking. <laughs> I'm just absolutely useless at it. I look better than I am because I tweet <laughs> and I can, I've just about learned how to do an Instagram live without sort of, you know, filming it upside down. But I'm really not good. And, and also, I've, I've got to say, when I'm reading a book, I, I just love the feel of paper. I love turning the page. I love marking things. I actually, and I know a lot of people don't like this, but particularly with nonfiction, I, I make a lot of markings in the book. And but you, the great thing in Kindle, says he. I know you're going to tell me you can do that on Kindle, but you have to, you have to, you have to do things, you have to do technical things that I don't like <laughs> doing, Rory. Oh, God. Let's, let's just, as we wrap up, just to, to explore this topic one last time. Um, Twitter, which you obviously do a lot of. And the way in which social media is having an impact on politics and the way that's changed since you were the director of communications back in 2005. I've got a friend who's an ex-CIA uh, analyst called Martin Gurry, who believes it's changed everything. He talks about a revolt of the public and that he saw this first in the Arab Spring. And I think he'd say that he saw it in Brexit and many other things, that what social media has done is create these amazing temporary coalitions of protest, which are very good at erupting bringing things down, but are very bad about being coherent and creating a positive program. And that this is one of the reasons for the kind of lurches, the weird lurches of our politics. Do you feel that social media has changed everything or is it an extension of what you knew before? Well, it's interesting you mentioned it in relation to the Arab Spring. I think, it, I think it played a huge role in that. Would that have happened without social media? Possibly not. Um, would Trump have become president without social media? Possibly not. Would Brexit have become happen without social media possibly not but i still think that if leaders and governments have a really really clear sense of their own strategy and really prosecute it without constantly worrying about the day-to-day -day noise and i do think for all that she's getting a lot of flack at the moment of her relationship with putin in relation to european energy supply i do think angela merkel was a good example of that of somebody who just did not allow herself to be pushed around by the day-to-day -day noise. She was somebody, you were talking earlier about whether Boris Johnson knows his own mind. Yes, she was a compromiser. Yes, she was somebody who would, you know, she, she was very adaptable in some ways, but she knew what she thought. And I, you know, I, I wouldn't have, Angela Merkel didn't tweet. No, of course yeah. the German government did. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it's still possible um, but I think your point about coalition of protests, that's the other thing I think. I think politicians have got to get better at not confusing momentary passing protest and momentary passing ways of opinion with their own strategic priorities, which shouldn't be changed simply because you suddenly got a to pile on on Twitter. And then the positive, I guess, of this, just in terms of where we are today, is Zelensky himself, who is the most extraordinary kind of master of social media and Twitter. And a lot of the support that we've seen for Ukraine, the incredible speed with which it's exploded, and I think the way in which it's driven politicians across Europe to go much further than they might have done otherwise, is partly about social media. Well, I wonder if part of the German government and Olaf Scholz's um, pretty dramatic shifts of foreign policy in recent weeks, recent days. I wonder if that is in part because of the fact that the, there was a, 
you know, again, I was reading about this in a German magazine at the weekend, but there was this across social media, a far bigger explosion of opinion about what was going on than maybe was normally the case in German politics, which isn't as volatile, isn't as angry, isn't as shouty as ours is. Um, so yeah, I look at, there's no doubt it's making a difference, but I like to believe leaders with strategic minds can still lead. Yeah. And I think your point there is an interesting one, isn't it? Because Schultz was enabled by the social media, but actually in the end, he made a very, very strong, bold, radical call in quite a lonely, solitary way. Didn't really tell his party, barely told his cabinet, stood up, made this incredible announcement that ripped up 30 years of his party's policy that he was going to spend 100 billion euro on defense, that they were going to go up to 2%. And, and, got, a and got a standing ovation for it. And got a standing ovation, initially stunned. I mean, members of parliament looking at him, not quite now, and then right on their feet and applauding. Mm. And something like 70% of the British, of the German population behind him. And that really showed something else very interesting about political leadership and courage, that you can take a very radical decision almost on your own. And if you're very skillful and you know what you're doing, you can change everything and be popular in the context. Mm. Also, don't forget, he's, he's doing it very early in his chancellorship, which I think you do have greater power in the early days. Oh, okay. I guess Putin is the opposite case. He feels he's got relentless, limitless power after two decades plus in power. But no, I thought the Schultz thing was very interesting. But I do, I think you're right that social media played a, played a part in getting there. Now, listen, before we wrap up, Rory, um, I keep digging into stories about your life, obviously, now that we're doing this chart-topping podcast every week. Um, but you've been, you, you walk everywhere, but you've been walking in the South Pole. Yeah, that, that was really, I mean, that's an extraordinary experience. I was there in just, just now in January, which is basically the only time a normal person can go to the South Pole. It's very strange. You sleep in a tent. It's blazing sunshine all the time. You can't pee on the South Pole, so you have to carry a bottle around into which you pee. What do you mean you can't pee? Well, you're not allowed to leave anything. It's so amazing, actually, the South Pole. This incredible continent, this international treaty set up in the 50s, which stops anybody from mining it, but also means that you're not allowed to leave anything behind. So you've got to take literally your urine and your, your poo out with you. Uh, so you're getting up at two in the morning. It's blazingly bright. Uh, you're staggering around trying to pee in this bottle in your tent. Uh, it's it, And it does feel like another planet. I mean, you realize that underneath this sheet of ice, it goes down in a way that you can't see 6,000 feet into something that would look like Scottish valleys and Scottish mountains if the ice melted. But it's just flat right the way across. And, and I was really, I was really, I suppose the thing that inspired me most was that sense of international cooperation that somehow all the greed of the United States and Russia and China and Europe and everybody at a time when the Cold War was really flexing its muscles, we were able to get together and agree that Antarctica, this enormous continent with the most incredible mineral wealth and oil and gas was off limits and that we've managed to hold to that for decades. Mm. How many, how many bottles did you need? <laughs> yeah, I took a big bottle. <laughs> a big <laughs> bottle. And you don't want to drink too much. And then you start getting, then you start getting a headache because actually it's quite high in terms of altitude. The whole thing, I mean, I've got, I came up with so much respect. I was doing it at the same time as this incredible British woman uh, called Pola Preet. She's a British Asian soldier. Uh, was doing a solo journey from the coast to the South Pole. I came up with so much respect for mm. her keeping going day after day after day. It's a brutal, brutal environment. All right, Rory. Well, I think we've blathered on long enough for episode two. Uh, thank you, everybody who's been listening. Uh, do follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Rest is Politics. Yeah, or leave us an iTunes review. And thank you very much and see you next Wednesday. Goodbye. Goodbye.